Welcome to Global Minnesota Podcast, connecting, informing, and engaging Minnesotans with the world and exploring important international issues. For a complete list of programs and to join us, visit globalminnesota.org. Hello, everyone. My name is Mark Ritchie, and I want to welcome you all to our Service in Afghanistan program, a conversation with Ambassador Ross Wilson and Career Foreign Service Officer Margot Squire. Today, we are really thrilled to be able to present this program and how we can present these programs free of charge to viewers like yourself and those who are viewing in from around the country is that your membership and your contributions and those of our sponsors make these kind of programs possible. So thank you very much for being in that contribution. It would be important for all of you who are viewing, if you can keep your audio and your video muted, uh, that would be a very helpful thing for the whole program. So thank you. We want to make a special welcome to our guests um, who are, are tuning in from around. And again, guests, if you could please uh, keep your audio and your video uh, muted, that would be great. We want to thank our program sponsors, our co-sponsors for this evening, the World Affairs Councils of America, which is an organization of over 80 organizations like Global Minnesota, uh, pr promoting, um, as we are, greater international understanding and engagement. And also the University of Minnesota's Humphrey School of Public Affairs will be joined by Humphrey School Ambassador and Diplomat in Residence, Mary Curtin, later in the program. We really appreciate their participation. We were able to have a program earlier today with Dr. Um, Mabiba um, Mandela from South Africa, and we're thrilled whenever we have a chance to partner with our Humphrey School. So tonight's program, uh, there'll be two uh, speakers, two presentations. The first is the Charged Affairs at the U.S. Embassy in Kabul from January 2020 to August 21. Ambassador Ross Wilson led the U.S. diplomatic mission there in Kabul. It, certainly one of the most trying and most tumultuous periods in the history of American diplomacy, but also in the nation of Afghanistan. Um, his wife, Margot Squire, who is a career Foreign Service officer, served as the Cultural Affairs Specialist and um, had a network of 27 American cultural centers across the country, which were also part of our diplomatic mission there in Afghanistan. This will be a conversation with both of them as they share their experiences from this historic and this um, you know, eventful time, as well as their thoughts on the social and economic advances that improved the lives of Afghan people, what might've been taken as advances in context of the current political crisis and political climate in Afghanistan. And I mentioned earlier, we're really fortunate, Mary Curtin, diplomat in residence at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs, we'll be moderating um, that conversation. So again, for all of you who are viewing, if you can make sure that your audio and your video are, uh, are muted or turned off, that would be great. I wanna thank uh, Ross and Margot very much for this program this evening. It's very special and we're very excited to be joined by people from all over the planet. I wanna thank you for sharing your views and your ideas and your experiences of Afghanistan. And I wanna ask you to join me here on the screen and I'll be turning the microphone over to you. Welcome, Ross and Margo. 
Thank you very much, Mark. Thank uh, you. Good evening to all of you. On uh, Sunday morning, August 15 of last year, uh, I went to the to our embassy early to uh, talk with Rear Admiral Pete Baisley, uh, the commander of U.S. forces uh, Afghanistan. He and I had been talking early for a number of days uh, in a row, especially after the first uh, Afghan provincial capital fell uh, on August 6. After a few minutes of conversation, uh, I put in a call to Secretary of State Blinken and National Security Advisor uh, Sullivan uh, and laid out the picture as we saw it that morning. First, thousands of Taliban fighters were streaming toward Kabul, into Kabul province, seemingly poised to completely surround the city uh, within hours or at most a day or two. Reports of gunfire uh, in the city suggested that Taliban insurgents were already there, in fact. These moves contradicted assurances uh, by the Taliban to us that their forces would not uh, 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 would halt well away from Kabul and not come into the city. And also what we knew to be internal orders that Taliban commanders had given to their troops that those troops should stop. Uh, either they were lying uh, or there were serious command and control issues uh, or both problems existed. Second, Talib units were expected that day, the 15th, to take over two large prisons uh, not far from Kabul and free thousands of additional Taliban fighters there, fighters of the so-called Islamic State and uh, hundreds if not thousands of common criminals. These releases would have added to the risk and violence and mayhem uh, spiraling out of control that we were, uh, we were most worried about. Third, security forces overnight, uh, the, uh, August 14, 15, had abandoned posts um, controlling access to and movement within Kabul's uh, international zone or green zone, the pro highly protected area where the presidential palace, many government offices, and our and other embassies were located. People and cars moved very freely through these checkpoints that were intended to stop them. This meant more risk to us and to our international allies who remained. We had agreed three days earlier to begin moving to the airport to hunker down there in the face of what was already rising instability. Now, on the 15th, with only our walls and security forces to protect us from what might be uncontrollable and chaotic violence, and facing the risk of finding ourselves marooned, I recommended the embassy's immediate evacuation. Over about 18 hours, we completed the destruction of sensitive material that had been ongoing for some time, uh, locked up the chancery, and moved about 1,500 American and third country national uh, personnel still at the embassy compound uh, to the airport, all in an orderly way without casualty or incident of any kind. As the American flag came down, and you can see pictures there of me receiving uh, the flag that had been lowered, uh, we heard gunfire. Hostile gunmen were reportedly 
uh, on the empty floors of a building that looked directly onto our compound. It's that building in the upper left, upper right-hand side of the photo on the right. I learned just before we took off at about 2.30 p.m. that helicopters carrying President Ghani had departed uh, uh, Kabul about a half an hour earlier for points unknown. The government had collapsed. These events were among the last before America's withdrawal from Afghanistan and before the end of my unexpected 20 months as our embassy's chief of mission and charge d'affaires. My wife and I wanna thank all of you for joining us. I will try in the next few minutes to characterize what we faced in 2020 and 21, the run up to August 15 and what the airport scene was like on the ground uh, and talk a little bit about where Afghanistan finds itself now. Margot, uh, whose uh, love and support were a lifeline to me. We'll talk about what she did and the embassies, especially in the embassies outreach to Afghans uh, for which she played a leading role. So in late 2021, senior officials at the State Department contacted me to ask if I would be willing to come out of retirement and go to Kabul. The incumbent ambassador planned to um, leave shortly. Efforts to get a permanent replacement, as often happens, had stalled. And others who might have gone to Kabul in the interim between the two were apparently unwilling or unable to go. I was reluctant too. Uh, for a whole long list of reasons, including the fact that I'd never served in Afghanistan or worked on it in any significant way. I visited Washington uh, late in the year to talk with Secretary Pompeo and others. And after much soul searching, I concluded that though they should be asking and getting someone else, they were asking me. And it was my duty to serve. As Mark noted, I arrived in Kabul on January 20, five weeks ahead of the signing of the U.S.-Taliban agreement on February 29th. Its premise was to use the leverage of our leaving the country. May 1st, 2021 was specified in the agreement as a target date for that. To use that leverage to get clear commitments from the Taliban uh, that they would not allow attacks on us to be organized from territory they controlled ever again, and to engineer negotiations and a, and a peace settlement to end the country's long-running insurgency. Responsibility for those negotiations and for contacts with the Taliban belong to Special Representative for Afghan Reconciliation, Zama Khalilzad. Our efforts my efforts in Kabul to support the U.S.-Taliban agreement were on the Afghan side with the country's people, its institutions, and its leaders. The public, and you see two of them there, President Ashraf Ghani and Abdullah Abdullah, who had served as foreign minister, was a prominent leader of the opposition uh, and, uh, uh, and a, a, an Afghan patriot, both of them. The public broadly welcomed the prospect of peace, but feared the Talibs, and many were deeply apprehensive about what 
compromise for peace might look like. The armed forces put security at, of the country at the top of their agenda, but they wanted the killing to stop. From the day I arrived until President Ghani fled, the country's leaders, including these two, bickered over everything, including all of the issues that had to do with peace, compromise, and even the country's security. Over the same period, Talib attacks every week claimed the lives of hundreds of Afghan citizens, soldiers, police officers, school teachers, journalists, women, and others. Afghan Taliban uh, peace negotiations began in September after uh, struggles over a variety of issues. They quickly bogged down. The Trump administration unilaterally decided to reduce uh, the U.S. force presence in Afghanistan from about 12,500 when I arrived to 8,600, then 4,500, then 2,500 by the end of 2020. These cuts and the way in which they were done undermined our and the Afghans' leverage to shape any kind of an acceptable compromise if, if in fact, one could be shaped at all. Within days of taking office, the Biden administration began a review of Afghan policy. It culminated uh, on April 14, when the, when the president announced that US forces would be leaving the country no later than September 31st, a date which was later amended to, uh, later amended to August 31st. President Biden and others were clear that uh, though our forces would leave, the United States would not that we plan to continue our support and assistance to uh, the people of Afghanistan, to the security forces of Afghanistan, to the country's institutions, and that the embassy aimed to remain in the country and staffed to carry out that work. In the aftermath of the president's announcement, we worked along several different lines. There were last attempts to try to revive and accelerate the peace talks. We urged Afghan leaders to come together and to rally their forces and, pe and their people in defense of their country. This is a central point of President Biden's when he met with President Ghani in Washington in late June. We backed that up with military action of our own against the Talibs in defense of the Afghan, uh, our Afghan partners. And we tried to help the Afghans come up with a defense strategy of their own for the period ahead when we would be gone. Internally, we accelerated the so-called special immigrant visa program to get interpreters and other Afghans who would work for us out of the country. By summer, hundreds a day were departing for the United States. To lower our risk, we reduced our staff and we developed a contingency plan to move temporarily to the airport if conditions in the city became too uncertain. That's the plan that we implemented on August 15. I wanna say a little bit about life in Kabul. For those who've been in the Middle East, the picture will look familiar. It looks in a lot of ways like your typical Middle Eastern city. Population estimated between six and 10 million people versus fewer than 200,000 
when the Taliban was driven out of power in 2001. Street life was bustling, the markets were jammed, people all about everywhere. The status of women in Afghanistan was mixed and frankly not particularly good, but they moved about and lived more or less freely and, and semi-normally at least uh, in Kabul and in other, ma other major cities of the country. It was ringed, the city is ringed by mountains. You'll notice that here, there'll be a picture a little bit later that show this, the Hindu Kush snow-capped peaks uh, around the city that, that existed in a kind of bowl, which meant among other things for some astronomical air pollution problems uh, that affected all of us. Our embassy community was extremely large, the largest uh, in the world. Uh, we lived under extraordinary security conditions. Very few uh, people got off, uh, got out of the embassy compound other than uh, a few senior officers, obviously including me and the rather large security details that went with us wherever, wherever we went. There were of course even fewer officers that got out uh, once COVID affected us as it did quite seriously uh, in the second half of 2020 and, and also in the middle of 2021. Personal protective equipment, we can say flak jackets and helmets were standard gear for everybody there. We did drills on, an on a very frequent basis so that people knew what to do in dire circumstances. Those who did get off the compound carried tracking devices so that they could be tracked found, tracked down and found in the event uh, something untoward happened. A big blimp uh, flew over the sky was, uh, of Kabul to give us visibility uh, of what was going on out in the city. We had devices to shoot down rockets and to deal with drones that might venture in our direction. We took security extraordinarily seriously. And that was one of the first things that struck me when I arrived. To turn to the period after August 15 and the airport, you would have seen this on television in some ways saw things that, I'd, uh, that, that are unknown to me, but a couple of points to highlight. Immediately after we went to the airport, crowds outside uh, formed outside the airport's perimeter clamoring to get in and they got in twice in thousands during our first two days uh, at the airport. Mobs on the tarmac that were a threat to us uh, and suspended any kind of normal air operation, either to bring uh, troop reinforcements in to bolster security or to get Afghans out. We faced a high threat, gunfire, explosions every day, all the time. You know the uh, the uh, heard about the steady stream of threat reports uh, of of a potential ISIS attack, which in fact happened uh, on August 26, and all of us there mourned their loss. We had a a, a an absolute torrent, a Niagara Falls of appeals, requests, demands for help in getting out from Afghans, from embassies and organizations in Kabul, from ex-generals, NGO leaders, media organization executives, members of Congress, Biden administration principals, 
hundreds and hundreds and hundreds every day to me, to our senior staff, to our line officers, to the senior military officers, to their senior staff, to their line officers. So overwhelming that, that all of this correspondence um, interfered with our work in getting people out. So overwhelming that policy decisions about who should be our priorities, American citizens, permanent resident aliens, our, our own staff, embassy staff, uh, the SIV population became almost impossible to implement sensibly. Our, our staff and consular officers from all over the world mobilized in an un, unprecedented way to communicate, to reach out with, communicate uh, with uh, all of the American citizens in Afghanistan we could reach with our local staff, with Afghans of interest to us. We successfully affected the departure from Afghanistan of over 124,000. I departed on the last flight that left around midnight on August 30th, 31st. One of four staffers left from what had been the largest embassy in the world. Before I conclude with some thoughts about what the Taliban inherited, I want to turn over to Margot, who left a month before me, to talk about her experience at work. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Um, as Ross said, Ross was there for 20 months, and I arrived in July of 2021. Uh, I'm sorry, in September, beginning of September of 2020, and left in July, the end of July 2021. Uh, I was, uh, when I was ordered out, um, I had expected to be there until mid-September when we would both leave, but of course the country fell. Uh, here I am after one of the drills that Ross mentioned, wearing my helmet and my flak jacket. Uh, we had, the security situation was getting worse. We had three, two drawdowns before I went on the third. The first was in April. Uh, a significant number of the embassy staff were, were, were ordered home. Uh, I was, I, a second group was the beginning of July and then I left the end of July. Um, this, the number of drills we had went from about once a month to once a week or so in the late spring. The security situation was dire and we were reminded of a few real attacks around us including one Saturday morning as Ross and I ate breakfast on our balcony, we could hear what, what sounded like fireworks going up and then realized they were rockets coming in. Uh, we got away very quickly. But some of us could also see the results of the attacks in the city, like rising smoke in May from the ISIS attack on the Hazara Girls School in the west of the city. Here's a, a view uh, actually from one of the windows in our apartment. Uh, you can see the Hindu Kush there, the, the beautiful mountains that surrounded the city. There was a park directly behind. And then you can see in the foreground, the, the embassy. Uh, the embassy was like a small city. Um, 
because of tight security and also COVID, as Ross mentioned, very few people could go out. Uh, it was like a, a, a city of 44 to 5,000 people, self-contained diplomats, contractors, and a lot of security. Uh, my boss who lived there, who had lived and worked in Afghanistan initially from the year 2011 to 2012, had traveled to most of the 34 provinces in that time. And in his last year there with me, he was not able to go out at all, ever. And that was the case with most people. Now, I was lucky I was able to get out 10 times uh, into the international zone uh, to, to visit mostly uh, along with Ross or separately uh, to meet with some human rights uh, uh, human, human rights activists in various times. Uh, I also was lucky, fortunate that between uh, between the, the, the different COVID episodes, uh, there was a short period when we could actually meet with people uh, in, in the embassy. And I met with a number of, of people, including one young woman who particularly inspired me, uh, Roya Maboub, uh, who's a young tech entrepreneur and the founder of the Afghan Girls Robotics Team. This is one of the uh, walls uh, on the embassy compound. You can see this mural of the Afghan girls robotics team that was done by a group called Art Lords, Afghan artists and activists who call themselves artivists. Uh, and uh, this picture was taken as they were contemplating a trip to the United States uh, where they won a special prize. Just that year, the, the group had developed a, uh, a new COVID respirator using, using a, a, a plan by MIT, but, you, but built on Toyota Corolla parts because the Torola, Torola, Corolla uh, is the most uh, ubiquitous car in certainly in Kabul and across uh, Afghanistan. Around our compound, we had these high, 12 foot high concrete walls. So my career um, had been in pu public diplomacy, a retired foreign service officer. And in public diplomacy, unlike uh, what people think of as traditional diplomacy, uh, the goal is to reach out to public, foreign publics, reaching people um, through the press, uh, organizing people to people exchanges, uh, discussions and uh, with people uh, and bringing people together to work on issues. So as Ross noted, while I was in Afghanistan uh, or actually Mark Ritchie noted, uh, I was involved with a, a group of a network of 27 American centers across 30, these 34 provinces. Uh, they were called Lincoln Learning Centers or LLCs, but after Abraham Lincoln, uh, they had computers and in an internet, Wi-Fi. They offered English language classes and some computer classes and programs for Afghans, a space where Afghans could meet in, in their uh, local cities. Uh, it was run by a small staff. They, they were run by a small staff of Afghans, a director, a deputy director, some English teachers, and then many, many volunteers, mostly young people high school, university age, and managed by a, an American NGO. And these 
uh, LLCs, Lincoln Learning Centers, were the main way that we in the embassy could reach Afghans across the country because of the deteriorating situation with security and also COVID. Uh, when the Taliban last ruled, Afghanistan was closed to the world. Girls couldn't go to school, women couldn't work. Uh, they had to travel even sometimes within some of the cities with, with a male chaperone. There was no television, no internet, no music, and no access to the outside. So the LLCs provided this, this opening uh, and empowered young people, uh, women and girls, young men, to support their communities through local action on things that range from health to human rights. Here's uh, an LLC. Uh, and you can see they're having a, a program in honor of human rights, uh, probably Human Rights Day. Um, along the side, you see the computers. In the back, there are some posters for education in the United States. Typically, they would have uh, discussions, someone uh, over Zoom, because this is, this is clearly during COVID and they're all wearing masks and also spaced, uh, so only ha at half the capacity. Uh, they would have a discussion and, and then a question and answer and then um, discuss ways that they could follow up by reading a book, coming back and discussing it. Uh, you could see that they have a rights book here. Other LLCs were reading My Name is Malala by uh, Malala Yousafzai. Uh, and I saw firsthand how these centers and programs helped young people develop skills and confidence and volunteerism to take initiatives in their communities where there wasn't a local history of doing this, of, of pulling together uh, citizens to solve problems the way we do in the US uh, around the various issues that we care about. Uh, and I can talk about that a little bit later, but I wanted to show uh, a picture of Ross uh, actually in, in the embassy uh, working out of the office that we used to support these centers. Uh, what our main, uh, our main top priority through the year that I was there was the Afghan peace process, uh, supporting the Afghan government and the Taliban's negotiations and, and our work to help that and bring also hopefully peace and reconciliation. So Ross is, is, is facing a Zoom camera with uh, many centers, uh, you can see tables sort of like the one, maybe if you look closely at this. Uh, but we had a series that I or organized that were done by sector. So with businessmen what, or with women human rights figures or with uh, parliamentarians and uh, leaders in these various sectors with Ross, and then connected to all of the audiences in, in the 27 different centers so that the audiences could hear this discussion and they could ask questions and raise their concerns so that what they were hearing, they could hear what was happening uh, in the process and people's the different sectors concerns, but also, also then Ross and others could feed this back into, into the peace process that was happening in Doha. Uh, we had a we had many other programs that supported uh, peace and reconciliation in the, their local communities. Um, my my absolute favorite was a program that the U.S. Institute of Peace brought together uh, to train 
uh, through what they called peace clubs, young men and young women uh, to help promote uh, mediation and dialogue in their communities and in rural communities around them uh, to try to stop the, the violence because violence was the way disputes were so too often settled. Um, and to develop ways other than, you know, marrying a young girl from one family into another family to stop uh, a blood feud or something. Uh, and there were, there were some wonderful stories that came out of here. I left in July as the security deteriorated. Uh, already staff from seven of our Lincoln Learning Centers had been evacuated from the cities that they were in because they were overrun by the Taliban. This was the saddest trip that I, I I've ever had to take because of so much uncertainty. First, I had to leave Ross. I had to leave my work. I mean, ironically, the day that I left, the last thing that I did was to lead a program in the LLCs uh, with about 10, 10 or so, speaking with about 10 or so LLCs. And I, of course, worried about those centers and their Afghan staff, uh, the young people who had participated in the programs, uh, especially the women and girls, and especially a group that I met with every week uh, in Mazar-e-Sharif uh, virtually to run a converse, an English language conversation class. What was next for these people? And now I'm gonna bring you back to Ross. Thank you very much, Margot. Uh, just a couple of uh, closing thoughts. Uh, the Taliban, um, inherited Afghanistan in the latter part of August and the beginning of September last year. They inherited a heap of problems. Uh, they have little popularity uh, around the country and especially in the cities. They face much hostility throughout the country. They won not by the force of their ideas, but by their force of arms and perseverance. Uh, they face huge problems in governing a country. They have to figure out how to relate to a society that as a result of our experience there, uh, our investment, investment by other countries, other Western countries uh, in Afghan uh, institutions and in the Afghan people, a society that's modernized in ways that are completely unfamiliar to uh, the Afghans who now have the responsibility of leading the country. They have awful relations with their neighbors, with Afghanistan's neighbors, who, uh, who know what, what the impact of Taliban rule was the last time they, uh, they were in charge. They have set about replicating uh, many of the policies that they pursued in the uh, 1990s, to restrict education, to restrict women, uh, to repress those who oppose them. Uh, and in particular, uh, as the New York Times, I think today or yesterday reported, uh, going after those uh, and assassinating those who worked with the United States and supported our and other Western efforts there. The Talibs are also as divided among themselves as they are repressive of others. It's instructive that it took nearly a month after the Talib seized control to establish an interim government. 
and six or seven, eight months later, it still is an interim government. That's not what decisive, unified people do. Emir Haibatula on the left of your screen and other mullahs around him based in Kandahar, not in Kabul, reserve all the big policy decisions for themselves. And that became clear, I believe last week or the week before, when the government was moving to uh, resume education for girls throughout the country, and rather the government of which Mullah Baradar is a, is a principal deputy prime minister, and the mullahs abruptly reversed that decision, both to send a signal to Afghans uh, that there wasn't going to be much of a future, a modern future for, for girls and for women in the country, but also to demonstrate their own primacy vis-a-vis uh, -vis those in the government. Uh, the Talibs face a lot of violence. In the last 10 days, uh, an attack took place on a mosque. There was an attack on uh, a market a number of days before that. There have been sporadic attacks, according to senior officials in Kabul that I've spoken with recently throughout major cities of the country. Mostly, if not entirely, this is the work of the so-called Islamic State or ISIS. There is a nascent resistance uh, that is, as, as happened in the 1990s, based in the north. And that's a challenge for the Taliban, too. Uh, the, the short to medium term future for Afghanistan, uh, based on all of that, has got, a, to put it nicely, a lot of huge, huge question marks attached to it. Looking back, each of us who served in Afghanistan can imagine things that we or that our country might have done differently or better. All of us who served there are now living with that and with thoughts of what we were unable to do. I'm in that category too, but I'm also proud of our work to affect the evacuation of 124, over 124,000 people from a violent and uncertain Kabul. About 79 or 80,000 of those have come to the United States, the remainder to European or other destinations. And I'm proud of the role that I played for our country at a critical time. And with that, let me turn it back over. And uh, I think at this point, we're to bring Mary Curtin into the conversation. Thank you so much, Ross and Margot, for sharing those insights, your feelings, your vision, what you're thinking about, and also giving us an orientation to help fill some of those gaps of information that um, the larger media haven't really been able to help us uh, advance. We're really fortunate to have um, as our moderator for this next part, uh, Mary Curtin, who serves as a diplomat in residence at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs. And Mary Curtin, the floor is yours. Thank you, Mark. Uh, and thank you, Ross and Margot, for um, these really thoughtful uh, reflections on your service in Afghanistan. Um, I, as I, I mentioned to Ross and Margot before we talked that um, we have uh, colleagues at the Humphrey School, uh, one of whom has done extensive research in Afghanistan and one 
who was at the American University of Afghanistan, who also emphasized um, how much, uh, especially young people in young young adults, uh, you know, even in their twenties and thirties, um, committed themselves to a different future and a better future. That um, and so maybe I'd like to start with a question for Margot. I. I think sometimes Americans look at what we invested, you know, and the work that we did, and um, and and we and people like you did do a lot of work. But what I heard from Margot, for example, talking about these Lincoln Learning Centers or the robotics team, is that they, there were also Afghans who invested heavily and in, in their in their future, and and so. I, I wonder, Margot, if you could talk a little bit about uh, whether or not the work that you and, and many other Americans over you know, nearly 20 years, the, did the work that, that you did, do you see it uh, that the US did alongside Afghans, do you see it having a lasting impact? I think it right now tends to look a little um, bleak, but could you discuss you know, how you see, you know, what kind of hope do you see from the incredible investment that people like you and many Afghans that you worked with um, made over those years? Thank you for that question, Mary. Um, you know, absolutely. I mean, first of all, the fall of Afghanistan is a real tragedy for the American people, for the Afghan people. I mean, I think about, you know, the generation that really, you know, grew up in those 20 years uh, with an open, much more open society access to the outside, um, smartphones. Um, that was the thing that, that just you know, amazed me was how many people in the, the programs, the virtual programs that we did, uh, especially after the Delta variant uh, hit and the Lincoln Learning Centers had to close down for a while, we continued holding programs and, and English language conversations classes and, and other things through, through um, plat Zoom platforms over phones. And, uh, and you would you know, regularly get you know, 30 to 90 people uh, on uh, tuning in and active. Um, and the, these were programs that you know, we had a certain number of programs, but the vast majority of programs were generated by Afghans, you know, in the centers and people, you know, asking for programs on, on various things and help in various ways. Uh, I have no doubt that seeds have definitely been planted. I mean, right now, I think there are a lot of people that have had to go underground. But I think back to, you know, so many of the human rights figures that I knew um, had, uh, that I met in Afghanistan, uh, had earlier themselves either uh, organized and led underground schools during the last Taliban time, or they attended these underground schools. I have no doubt that there are, you know, these things, there are things that are still happening, uh, maybe underground, um, and that people are still, you know, actively involved to the extent that they can in their, in their communities. Um, you know, one story that, that I, 
that I think shows some of this is one of, uh, there was a young woman that worked with us in the embassy who had started out as a volunteer when she was in high school and then university at a Lincoln Learning Center in her hometown and then became a deputy director, uh, which was a great stepping stone from there to work uh, somewhere else, uh, you know, in a business, in an international organization. Uh, so she, and then was, was hired to work in the US embassy, uh, was managed to be part of the evacuation. And now in the US was just recently hired by the International Rescue Committee, IRC, to help um, raise funds for Ukrainian refugees in Europe. So she, you know, it's her sort of the activism and volunteerism that she learned, she is now still putting to use and for others. Um, and I know that there are, there are others and I have other stories of, of people who are doing just things like this now that they've come you know, to the US and elsewhere. That's great. And depending on our time, maybe we can, you know, hear a little more of those stories. Um, Ross, you finished up with, uh you know, pictures that I think reflect um, the, the view of, you know, our view of the Taliban. There have been articles both in Foreign Affairs, um, New York Times about the harshness of the, this new returned Taliban rule. And we've also heard stories of really um, horrific humanitarian situation of ordinary people. Um, what do you think the United States should be doing now? What, what should our engagement or non-engagement be with Afghanistan, whether the current government, the people of Afghanistan, um, how do we go forward? Um, thanks, Mary, for the question. I think one critical element uh, to draw from what Margot said a moment ago is to uh, is to find ways to support, uh, to work with, to advocate for um, that generation of millions of, of Afghans who came of age or came into um, public civic life in their communities and towns and cities um, and, and ensure that um, you know, we're happy about those people that got out, but but many of those, most of those who were beneficiaries of, of uh, the investment that we and others made uh, in healthcare and education, they're still in Afghanistan uh, and, uh, and they need support and they're looking for a helping hand uh, from America and from other countries. I think um, uh, to follow on from my comments about the Taliban, not only do they face a, a huge pileup of problems in a, in a society that is quite different from uh, what, they, what they know, even those who were in power in the 1990s, or maybe especially those, but they're also almost exquisitely incapable of dealing with the problems. They, they don't have the education, they don't have the context, they don't know what questions to ask. And I think as, as a kind of narrow uh, and incapable uh, Taliban regime uh, flails with its problems and, and fails, um, the, the wheel of politics will turn in, uh, in that country. 
there will be opportunities for those in whom we invested to uh, to play a role in influencing and shaping uh, Afghanistan's future. And I think, uh, so that kind of leads to the second point, what, what do we do now? The United States made a big mistake in the 1990s in being gone from the country completely. Uh, from the time we uh, pulled our embassy out, I think in the late stages of the uh, Soviet, uh, Soviet troop presence there, uh, until after uh, the United States went back into Afghanistan following the 9-11 attacks uh, on, on our country. And um, we, we, from memoirs I've read of people who were involved with Afghanistan, they, they recognized, believed, and argued that we, we should not turn our backs. And I think the same is true now. Obviously, we're not going to send the 82nd Airborne. Uh, we're not going to have uh, gigantic aid programs, least of all uh, to the government or to the, that might in any way, shape or form benefit the Talibs. But there's a lot of space between, between all of that or what we did uh, before our departure in August uh, of last year and, and where we are now, which is pretty close to zero. Uh, our, our, our Kabul embassy kind of exists in exile in Doha. Uh, they carry out some kind of a conversation, as I understand it, with the Taliban. They have contacts uh, whose nature I, I don't entirely know uh, with, with people in the country to monitor developments there. They're involved in trying to, in the continued effort to get Afghans out of the country. And, and the last I, I heard, it was in excess of 4,000 had been gotten out as of a couple of months ago following uh, our final departure at the end of August last year. But finding ways to, uh, to, to show our support, to demonstrate that support, including to the extent that security conditions war can, can support this by going to Afghanistan and being there and, and being on the streets. Margot and I, and, and I, you also, Mary, spent a significant, we all spent a significant part of our career behind the Iron Curtain. And one of the things we did as diplomats was just go see people. That was a form of support for them. It was moral support and it was support vis-a-vis -vis the authorities. Uh, and I think we, I, I would like for us to try to find some ways uh, to do that, to be on the ground uh, and, uh, and, and demonstrating our continued commitment to what it, what it was that we spent 20 years trying to do, even if we recognize that the Talibs are now uh, are now in control. The last thing I, I would say, there is a debate uh, among uh, among some, certainly prompted by the Taliban and their apologists, uh, about whether we should recognize uh, the Taliban government, whether others should recognize the Taliban government. Um, I believe no one has recognized the Taliban government to date. I, I might be wrong about that. Certainly very, very, very few, if, if any, have. I think that that kind of a step is premature. But again, there's, there's a lot of space between something and between nothing uh, and, and everything. And I, I hope the United States can find a way to, uh, to explore that space. Great. I, I actually was going to ask you, you know, about this conversation. One of the hardest things I think in diplomacy um, 
is when there is a government which is by any objective standards, you know, a horrific oppressive government. And how do you relate to that? Because in order to return and reopen an embassy that requires recognizing a government, you can't have an embassy, you can't just go in and say, we're here, you know, we're gonna be back. And so it does involve engagement with a, with a government. Um, and, um, you know, I know that across the spectrum, there's a lot of debate, you know, that, um, you know, how can we recognize this government for, for given all the things that it does, but I think you make, you know, the case of why that, that is important. You can't be there if you don't have an embassy that facilitates that presence there. Yeah, and I I would just add, um, you, you don't really have to recognize a government in order to have an embassy. The, the Russians, the Chinese, the Turks, the Qataris, at least three or four others have embassies in Kabul. Mm -hmm. uh, they meet with Taliban officials. Mm -hmm. They don't recognize that government, and they're quite explicit about that. And I think I think they're they're in in this day and age with Zoom and everything else, uh, there are ways to uh, to um, uh, to, to build and sustain a dialogue. There are ways to come in for periodic visits, uh, mm -hmm. which I know the, the Germans and the British mm -hmm. uh, have done. Uh, it shows the flag. It, mm -hmm. it waves the flag also in front of the Taliban. And yes, there, there's, there's a little bit of whiff of recognition, I suppose, that goes with that. Mm -hmm. But we also live in a, real, in a real world. There is an Afghanistan of 40 mm -hmm. million people who for better or worse are ruled by the Taliban to pretend that they don't exist, to hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil, as far as they're concerned, to have nothing to do with them, I think, is 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 not in our interest, and well, will help yeah. to sustain the investment. And if I could just add, I mean, you know, you you've you touched on this, but we've also we've had embassies and and uh, had representation in countries with terrible leadership in the past. I mean, I think of, you know, South Africa in the dark days of apartheid, the Soviet Union uh, in the middle of the, of the Cold War. And what that gave us was additional leverage. Mm -hmm. You know, we were there and on the ground. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, we didn't necessarily have to agree with them, but we could also do things that could help, you know, human rights, and uh, and people on the ground. Mm -hmm. And Margo, I was going to ask you, and then this will probably have to be our last question. Um, uh, you know, one of the issues that I know a lot of Americans talk about is is specifically the treatment of women, and both you and Ross referred to that. Um, the the for example, the woman that you uh, worked with who works for um, the IRC for IRC, yeah, now. Um, have you talked to her or any others that maybe you've kept in touch with about, you know, as Afghan women, um, how do they feel about what kind of presence the United States, they would like to see the United States having? Or oh, have that's, they not really... that's interesting. I haven't had that sort yeah. of a conversation with them. It's mm. been more at a basic level of, you know, how are they doing? Are they doing? Yeah. Um, and, you know, especially yeah. now, while there's, uh, celebrating their first Ramadan mm -hmm. uh, outside of Afghanistan and and uh, uh, without family, um, you know, many of them uh, have left. Most of them have family members back there uh, and are worried about, you know, 
mothers and sisters and other women who were back there. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I'm, I'm not sure I can really answer, answer mm. your, your question other than they're still struggling with what it means to be you know, a refugee, basically, Mm -hmm. you know, picking up your life in another country. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that that is, you know, um, the fact that the woman you described is now helping Ukrainian refugees. um, And and that I have is, another story. I have another story. Your, yeah, tell you tell us tell us another so, story. And so then this we'll... is Ross and I went to visit Fort McCoy uh, in Wisconsin, Wisconsin. You know when that when it was still housing uh, um, many refugees from Afghanistan, mm-hmm. and as we're going around uh, we, the the. Uh, the fort, we visit a, a sewing center, which was being sponsored by the local American community uh, mm. in that part of Wisconsin. So they had donated uh, sewing machines and material and um, Afghans who were there who had left, obviously, you know, often with just the clothes on their backs, mm. you know, they lost their suitcases and anything that they might have taken with them could in the course of an afternoon, they could make outfits you know, clothing for themselves and for family members. And so I was talking with some people and Ross called me over and he, and he said, this woman worked in an LLC and it was the Mm. deputy director of one of the the Mm. LLCs and probably the person that I was the closest to Mm. or felt Mm. the closest to. So here I am in this fort and hugging this woman and she's explaining that she's volunteering in this center to help other you know, Afghan refugees as they're mm. making clothing and, and helping their families. And I, to me, that was just, you know, the quint, quintessentially what we were trying to do with the LLCs. Mm. And there she was. Uh, she's now studying uh, at an American university. That's great. That's great. Um, Ross, do you have final word that you would like to say before we say goodnight here? I'll turn it back over to Mark. Um, as uh, as you'll have figured out from uh, from the comments that Margot and I made, Afghanistan was really extraordinarily difficult. Uh, at least uh, for me, there's nowhere else I would have rather been, and no one I would would have rather shared it with uh, than my wife. I'm glad I'm home. I'm glad we're both home. Thank you. So- we Mary. are glad you're home too. So Mark, I'll turn it over to you. Then. Thank you to all of you, Ross and Margot, for your service and for being here this evening and wherever they are in the world, perhaps it's morning some places. Mary, thank you again for your partnership and your participation. And again, thank you to our members and supporters who make these kind of programs and our whole program at Global Minnesota um, available to the whole planet at the moment. And it seems like relatively soon, some aspects of our program will be going back to in-person and we're Excited about welcoming Ross Ambassador Wilson back onto our board at Global Minnesota. I want to alert all viewers to the list of upcoming events on the Global Minnesota website because there are some very special things like tonight's program. Uh, The International Women of Courage is a very special designation of less than a dozen women around the planet who've risked their lives for human rights and for dignity and justice. We have the honor of hosting two of those um, at Global Minnesota, and there'll be a virtual roundtable, so digital like this, 
April 15th at 11 Central Time. So that's on that calendar there on Global Minnesota's website. The Sustainable Development Goals, some of you know about the UN and the global campaigns to bring sustainable development uh, to a higher level by 2030. We have our quarterly roundtable, our spring roundtable coming up on May 3rd at noon. And we'll be looking at a recent discussion we did with the Brookings Institute on localization of those sustainable development goals here in our state and in the nearby region. Uh, we have a members only a lunch and learn, we call it, but we're partnering with Libraries Without Borders. Some of you know that organization. They're working a lot in Minnesota on regional health and health promotion connected to libraries being integral in communities in all kinds of ways, particularly in this COVID moment. And then our evening abroad, so our gala, Global Minnesota once a year, depending on COVID, we gather sometimes in person. Last couple of years, it's been virtual. This year, it'll be a hybrid. Um, June 25th, uh, four in the afternoon, but it's also a wonderful gathering where we really celebrate our way that we as Minnesotans are in the world Global Minnesota's role for 70 years of helping to connect Minnesotans to the world. Today, we got an opportunity of a really special bird's eye view of uh, experience over the last part of the current participation by the US diplomatically in Afghanistan. We'll be following this um, on as we go forward. There are many things in the international or global arena that have our attention and we wanna keep Minnesotans aware engage and um, finding new ways that we can be part of making this world a more connected place um, in the way that we as Global Minnesota is consistent with our values. Ross, Margot, Mary, thank you again. Viewers, wherever you are in the world, thank you again for tuning in. We look forward to seeing you at another Global Minnesota program very soon. Good night. Thanks, Mark. Thank you. Good evening.